Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Kebane. Today we are going to complete our discussion on the nature of apophatic theology with a discussion of the nature of theological language and the way in which theological language is clarified by the concept of the apophatic. As usual, before getting into the main subject of the video, I want to encourage those who have not yet become patrons or YouTube members to consider becoming so. In addition to uh, premium content, patrons on the top tier will have at least one hour per month of guaranteed one-on-one -on -one discussion slash tutoring or whatever you need uh, uh, about something which interests you about something which interests me. So it's a very broad range of topics I'm happy to discuss and I guarantee a minimum of one hour, but I'm not going to charge you extra if it goes over an hour and it probably will go over an hour if we both are enjoying the conversation. Several people have commented how much they've gotten out of these conversations. So um, I'm very thankful for everyone who has become a patron. I'm thankful for their uh, kind words. And today I have released for all patrons, no matter what tier, a discussion of the way in which theosis is present in the New Testament, the way that Paul elucidates it in light of his doctrine of the righteousness of God, which is rooted and grounded in the Psalms and the prophets. And I discuss it by talking about what I learned from Michael Gorman's remarkable book, Inhabiting the Cruciform God. So with that said, let's begin with a prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires to enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doings of things are well pleasing unto thee. Thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy fathers from everlasting, and thine all holy good and life creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. So, I'm going to talk today about knowledge and theological language, because there is a way in which a person, having listened to everything that I've said about apophatic theology, might come away and simply conclude, okay, well, it seems that you're saying that God transcends knowing in the same way that any nature transcends direct knowing. That is, I've made the argument that the only way in which you know any subject at all, whether it is a rock or a tree or another human being, is through the intellective union that you have through your sensory powers or capacities, which are themselves energies, operations. They are a mode of self-extension in particular ways like sight, smell, and so forth. You extend yourself outwards in these sensory powers to receive those manifestations which are intrinsic and proper to their nature according to the peculiarities of what is called their idioms. So, I am human in the particular way that I am. It's not that I have qualities which are my human qualities and then I have qualities which are my cabane qualities. It is rather that my human qualities are expressed and embodied to the degree that they are in and through this unique rhythm of being. That's, that's what I'm talking about. So I've argued that the only way in which any nature is known is through the energies as they are expressed in a set of personal hypostatic idioms unique to a given subject. Remember, hypostasis in this context is a broader concept than personhood. So any particular thing in this context is what is being denoted by the word hypostasis important clarification here um but a person might legitimately ask having heard that okay well what is the big deal then why talk about god transcending knowledge if indeed we know god exactly as we know anything which exists and this question was a question which uh, not troubled me. It suggests that it caused me kind of personal stress, which it didn't. But it was a question which I found very difficult intellectually and uh, theologically for quite some time. And what I'm going to talk about today is the way in which I think we might legitimately answer the 
question because this is the way in which I believe that God is not subject to linguistic description in the way that creatures are subject to linguistic description. So let's begin here by just briefly talking about why we say God is apophatic, meaning he's known apophatically. God is apophatic because he is in essence beyond being. And note being. It's such a common word that we forget that it's actually uh, a verb or a kind of uh, derivation of a verb. But this is an important note. Being is something which is actively carried out. It is something which is in motion. The operations, energies, acts, these English words all translate the same two Greek words. Energeia usually translates uh, as energy or actuality, and ergon is often translated as work, or working and work. So a work, an ergon, is usually an individual instance of a working. We might say that the relationship between work and working, or ergon and energia, is analogous to, not identical with, but analogous to, the relationship between person and nature. That is, a work is an individual instance of the working, just as a person is an individual instance of the nature. And a work has certain things which distinguish it as a particular sort of individuation. So one has a good relationship with one's spouse, he described that relationship as love. And one day the husband comes home from work and he brings his wife flowers. That is an act of love, but the activity of love is broader than that individual act. That individual act is bound to it, it's derived from it, and is in fact an expression of the activity. So this analogy about the bridegroom and bride the two spouses. This is derived from David Bradshaw's excellent work. And I think Bradshaw's great strength, though I um, I have some disagreement in emphasis and in fact here and there, but his great strength is his deep awareness of the metaphysical implications of the doctrine of the energies and his ability, I think at least, to articulate it in a way which is actually intelligible. And it's not just a bunch of, you know, linguistic vomiting. Um, even as those who perhaps are not so interested in understanding uh, would accuse, accuse, accuse them of that. Um, in any case, that is what an energy in relation to an ergon or a work, working and work. Okay, So God is apophatic because he is beyond being in his essence, but the energies are being. Okay? The operations, this is the way in which God is God. Let us recall that the only way in which we predicate names of God and the only way in which we predicate names of anything are by knowledge of their qualities and knowledge of God's qualities. Why is it we call a bluebird a bluebird? Because we know it is blue. How is it that we know it is blue? Because we have the power of seeing. We are extended out of ourselves in a sensible capacity in relation to the bluebird, and the bluebird extends itself simply in virtue of what it is. Not every energy is an intentional act of will, though part of what distinguishes the divine life as supremely perfect is that he is intentional and purposeful in everything that he does. But a bluebird simply in being a bluebird is extending itself outwards by radiating blue light, by reflecting back to us, back to everything blue light, and that blue light is captured, apprehended, grasped by those creatures who extend themselves outwards in the act of sight. So we know everything in their energies, God and creature alike. Those energies are our being, and knowledge is something which emerges out of the network of likeness and relation, likeness and distinction, similarity and distinction. 
How is it that we know a given color? We know a given color because we see it in contrast to a whole other set of colors. If the only thing we ever knew was yellow, we wouldn't actually be able to distinguish it as anything identifiable at all. And thus, we actually would pay a lot less attention to it. So these things which are always present with us, these things which are constant aspects of our life, are in many ways the things which we know the least. This is, why is it that there are so many days we don't remember? Well, those days tend to be the days which exemplify sameness. So they're simply assimilated into the background. They are known in the least distinct way. Knowledge is something which emerges out of and is grounded in this distinct identifiability. And because this distinct identifiability is rooted in an interrelation, we might say a infinitely interwoven web of divine threads, God is himself in an infinite um, plenitude of infinitely interrelated ways. They are all tied together so closely that you take any thread and you find every other thread implicit in it. This is how God is indivisibly one. This web is totally manifest in the life of the Trinity. The Father manifests his whole self to the Son, and the Son reciprocally uh, manifests his whole life to the Father by the Holy Spirit. So there is an infinite unity. It is more united than anything in our creaturely existence is united, and yet it is more richly diverse than anything in our creaturely life is richly diverse. It is both one and many at the same time, and the oneness and the manyness complete each other. But because this is rooted, because these threads are energies, are operations, are what Lasky calls natural processions, that of which the energies are manifestations, that is the essence, are not members of that web. And if it's not a member of the web, it cannot be known because knowledge is something which takes place in the network of similarity and distinction. And that which is not a member of this network cannot therefore be known. So it is beyond knowing. And because being is coextensive with intelligibility, as Eric Pearl points out, if it is beyond knowing, it is beyond being. Now, Gregory of Nyssa does say that there is a way in which human nature is apophatic like divine nature. And I think this has to do with the way in which operation is the way in which we know any nature at all. But today we want to go beyond that. So this is the ground and basis of the famous statement that in theosis, we become by grace what God is in every respect except identity of essence. Now, I want to be very explicit in saying that this respect in which we do not become like God is not an arbitrary aspect. It is not as if there are 20 ways in the basket that we could become like another subject. And we just reach our hand in the basket, we pick one out, and then we find, oh, this is the one where, which we will not share. As if any property would do, if only there were some way that we are not likened to God and joined to his uncreated life. No, there is a reason that identity of essence is that which we do not share. And the reason for this lies in the relation of essence to energy. It's such an important point to make that energy manifests essence. And energy does not circumscribe the essence, but it nevertheless genuinely manifests the essence. After all, it is the means by which we identify God as what he truly is. The energies are the means by which we pick out a particular subject as a representative and individuation of a given nature. We know God as God because his divine energies manifest what he is at the deepest level, but we cannot name him beyond what the energies manifest. 
we give him many names, we give him one name. The many names are united in the one names, in the one name. But we give these names in knowledge, which as we just described is an intellective union. If we have blueness in our minds, something which is out there in the sensible world becomes mentally present. We have a mental image of blueness. It is truly and genuinely in our minds and the blueness which is present to our minds is the very same blueness which is present out there in the world. Uh, the classical tradition identifies the capacity to abstract universals as that which makes us uniquely human. Now, while we can't get inside the minds of animals, and so perhaps we should qualify this, that is definitely a topic for another day about which uh, we can have largely speculation. Uh, it does certainly seem to be intuitively true, at least given the human capacity to shape and restructure the world. Why is it that the human being can restructure the world in such an efficient way? It's because the human being has more than trial and error to go on. Why is it that the technology we invent works? It's because by study, we are able to apprehend those qualities and properties which are proper to the individual subjects which are in the creation and it is by manipulating in our mind the qualities of these created subjects in relation to each other that we are able to accurately and very consistently predict what behavior will result when we interrelate a number of distinct subjects in a novel way. A computer chip is a very sophisticated uh, uh, pattern of alteration. You take the raw material, the silicon, you alter it in a very sophisticated way. This was not done by trial and error, and we finally found the one way we could randomly uh, uh, hammer a piece of silicon until it generates a computer chip. No, this is something which results from the rational apprehension of its underlying nature, which means we apprehend it according to its energies, its activities, which means we apprehend it according to the effects that it has on other creatures according to the distinct modality of their nature. So all energy is relational, right? So how is it that the form, the idea of the silicon becomes present in our mind? Well, it is by the senses and through the senses, we abstract the formality, the archetype, which makes it what it is out from the individual uh, 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 idioms of any given creature along with the accidents those aspects which it simply picks up along the ride and don't actually manifest um, the nature they're just accidents they're accidentally present so knowledge is a union and our union with the creation and the intellect allows us to be fruitful so in the scriptures especially the old testament wealth is signified in agricultural terms, because this is Israel's great product. There were other nations for whom the great product was precious metals and stones, but Israel's wealth is articulated, Israel's capital is articulated in agricultural terms. And the growth in blessing is what we would today call economic growth. This is the compounding blessing, the creation of new wealth by the increase on the value of raw materials by the investment of human energy into the restructuring of those things which God has created. So God says, blessed shall be you in your field and in your womb. The land is fruitful just as the bride is fruitful. Population growth in the book of Exodus is itself a tool of dominion, as it were, because is or Egypt becomes terrified when Israel grows in population and thus begins to exert a much more substantial influence, relatively speaking, and thus its culture becomes more influential. It is able to shape the affairs of the civilization in a much more intimate and powerful way. Well, the union of the human being according to the powers of the mind with the form of the silicon is fruitful because it is the basis upon which there is creative transformation of the silicon into something which is far more valuable than the raw material was. You have something which is 
the exact same or even less amount of raw material and it weighs the same or less. You haven't created any new material, but you've made it much, much, much more valuable because you've restructured it in a way that is not reducible to its substratum. You're not going to produce the qualities of a computer chip by just appealing to the underlying pro uh, qualities of the silicon. So fruitfulness is associated with an increase in wealth, an increase in capital. Fruitfulness comes from a mutual interiority, and fruitfulness by mutual interiority comes in an intellective union. This is why sexual relations are described as knowledge. This is not a euphemism because, as we've spoken of before, a euphemism intends to obscure the essential character of an act. But to say that Adam knew his wife does not obscure the essential character of the conjugal act, that is sexual relations. It instead exegetes it. It elucidates it. It tells us the essential character of the act because in the conjugal act, the bridegroom and the bride who've been bound together in spirit become mutually interior to one another in a physical way. And it is in this total mutual interiority that the creation of new human persons is brought about. Thus, through a union of one subject with another subject, through mutual interiority, there is an increase of life. Because perichoresis, the Greek word for mutual interiority, the technical term, perichoresis defines the life of the Trinity. The Father is in the Son and the Spirit. The Son is in the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is in the Father and the Son. Each divine person is totally present within the other divine persons. It, he knows each of the other two divine persons totally and thus is able to declare and proclaim the qualities of each divine person to whomever he wishes to proclaim those qualities. So here's the point about theological language. To imprint the divine archetype, that is the logos with a lowercase l, on nothingness, which is to say to create something from nothing, that imprint is not the same thing as the univocal, meaning in the same sense, presence of the divine archetype. So this is a subtle point, but it's quite important. Think about the tripartite structure of biblical sanctuaries. You have the courtyard, you have the holy place, and you have the holy of holies. Now I want you to notice the similarity in language here. Holy place is the middle part, and then holy of holies, or most holy place, that's the top part. The same word is used to describe it. And you can make a bipartite categorization of the tabernacle like you can do a tripartite categorization. You could say the outside and the inside, the courtyard and the building, and the building would include both the holy place and the holy of holies. The same is true of the language of heaven, earth and heaven. Sometimes heaven and earth uh, is meant to signify the whole cosmos. But if we know the scriptures, we know that there are two distinct but interrelated heavens. There's heaven and then there's the heaven of heavens or the highest heavens. The highest heavens is where God and the heavenly council or the communion of saints dwells, is where all the holy angels dwell. It is made present to what we call earth. I call greater earth that portion of the creation which includes the sun, moon, and stars, but that's what I mean by earth here. This highest heaven can become present through the presence of God to earth, whether we're talking about the planet or greater earth, um, but it is distinct from it. Heaven is a symbol of highest heaven, and a symbol always communicates that which is symbolized. But there is a difference between created light and uncreated light. Created light is not merely, or is not at all rather, uncreated light present under a particular modality. No, the presence under a particular modality is the power by which God imprints his illuminating being on nothingness such that there is such a thing as created light. But it's not the same thing. Now, this is this is so important. So we can talk about 
So I mention it in this context to say that sometimes we can appropriately collapse two subtle, subtly distinguished kinds of existence into one another. We might describe the logos of a thing, right? It's the form of the thing, that which makes it what it is. But there are two aspects to what we mean by logos, which we have to subtly distinguish. There is the creaturely logos, that is the creaturely form, which let's say sets apart an elephant as an individual instance of elephantness. And then there's the divine idea, the uncreated thought or energy or archetype, which is imprinted to produce the created form or logos or archetype of the elephant. The elephant is not uncreated. And that which is created, and if its createdness is an aspect of its nature, and the logos is what endows the nature with its properties, then it must have, in some respects, a created logos. So there's this relation that God has whereby he imprints himself on that nothingness, whereby he creates a likeness such that the two can be associated without an identity. So he himself, this the form of the elephant is not itself uncreated, but it is an imprint of that which is uncreated. And this is what we mean at the deepest level by symbol. Symbol denotes this kind of relationship, or at least this is one of the relationships which is captured by the word symbol. So the relationship between the uncreated archetype in God's mind, the idea of the elephant in God's mind, and the creaturely sketch or blueprint of that elephant, well, the relationship between these two things is a symbol. And because the creaturely logos is immediately present in every concrete instance of an elephant, it is not as if uh, the actual living, breathing elephant is one step removed from its created logos. No, the created logos is immediately present throughout the whole individual instance. It is present according to its mode of individuation, its particular idiom, its rhythm of being an elephant. There are certain things which set it apart. But the relation between the divine archetype and the created type is symbol. And because the created type is present immediately in every instance of that type, we say that there is a relationship between each beast, every creature, and God that is symbolic in nature. God's thoughts, of course, describe the interior life of God. They capture the interior life of God, that is to say. That is God's interior life, that is to say. And as there is a symbolic relationship between creatures and the interior life of God, we say that the creation declares the character of God, and it truly and really does. We know something about God from the creation. We learn the kind of God that he is through the creation to the extent that it represents that which he intended by the power of his will. Now, there are free creatures who have corrupted and twisted the creation. This is far too complicated an issue to get into now, but I only set down that marker in case people ask, well, we have these various things which we identify as natural evil. And does that tell us something about God? And I'm not going to give even a short answer to that now because a short answer by the nature of its shortness would mislead more than it illumines. But the creation declares not only that God exists, but the way in which he exists. Because remember, existence is not a property distinct from, like, it's, it's not a property of its own, as if we have blueness and solidity, and then existence is just one property which we add on to the others. No, to say that something exists means that it exists in a specific way. The specificity and character of a thing's existence is simply and only what it means for it to exist.
Now, we're still on this third bullet point. While the uncreated archetype imprinted in a creature, keeping in mind what I've just said, can be known directly. Okay, so let's focus on this for a moment. What does that mean? What this means is that by the Holy Spirit, not only can we know the created logos of a thing, that is the imprinted character of the divine idea as it is realized in individuated instances of that thing but we can actually know the uncreated that is keeping in mind everything that we said about knowledge given that knowledge is intellective union given that union means a mutual interiority the life of god can become interior to our own life such that we become harmonized with God's qualities of existence, including his power of knowing, that our powers of knowing hook into God's power of knowing such that the latter is appropriated to our creaturely existence and we are able to know with the divine power of knowing meaning to know god himself directly as directly as anything is known we directly apprehend the uncreated life of god which means his thoughts the logi the uncreated archetype which is imprinted in a created form okay so that's what it means to know it directly but That direct knowledge cannot itself be articulated. And what does articulate mean? Articulate has to do with language, right? We always articulate something through language. It can only be articulated through a symbolic imprint, which we call language. So what we call language, what we're talking about, is itself a medium of symbolism. It is itself a mode of imprinting one thing upon another thing. And when we're talking about language in this context, that mode, this tool, this aspect of our life, well, it itself is created. So, as language is a created and thus a symbolic, because all creatures are symbols, as language is a created and symbolic medium, the nature of the symbolic correspondence between archetype, that is the uncreated idea, which is in the mind of God, which never began to exist, which exists as a perfection of his own existence, between archetype and created imprint. The created imprint being something like the idea of what it is to be an elephant. God's uncreated idea is imprinted and that creates the created idea. Okay. That created the relationship here cannot be given linguistic structure that extends beyond the symbolic. So we say that say God is a signet ring, God's uncreated archetype is a signet ring, and then the nothingness is analogous analogous in this context to wet clay. He presses the signet ring into the wet clay, and that creates a space within the wet clay which carries the qualities of the signet ring and yet that in no way means that the signet ring remains inside that space which it has created so this is what we're talking about this is we're talking about a way in which qualities can be mirrored without that which is being mirrored remaining immediately present now, as we've spoken of many times before, and I hope, I hope this is absolutely clear, in divinization and glorification, that which is imprinted, that of God which is imprinted in the wet clay of nothingness, i.e. the act of creation ex nihilo, archetype and type are joined together. They are tied together. And that type is uniquely suited for the archetype because it was produced from the archetype so the image of christ or the image of the logos 
that determines the structure and shape of the way that things exist. And because the determinate factor in the structure and mode of being of the creation is himself the Logos, well, the way in which its existence is perfected, and moreover, the way in which it is glorified, that is, it's not only the potentials of the existent thing which are realized, but it's actually joined to that from which it came in the beginning, it is glorified by the uncreated uniting with the created, not in a generic sense, but in the immensely and infinitely specific way that is proper to the specificity of every creature. Now, here's the, here's the rub. To say that one thing is mirrored in another, to say that one thing is imprinted in another, that's not the only thing that we could usually say. There's usually a specific way in which one thing is imprinted upon another thing. So we can elucidate the inner logic behind why a signet ring having the physical qualities that it does can shape wet clay in the way that it does. The wet clay having the physical qualities that it does. The wetness having the implications that it does and the temperature of the clay in relation to everything around it having the qualities and implications that it does. But this is not true when we talk about the way in which a creature symbolizes its uncreated archetype. Why is it that we cannot give an articulation of the mode in which the uncreated is imprinted and gives rise thereby to the created? It is because the only possible way we can articulate anything is through language because we're speaking about rational apprehension and language is created itself. And we're not talking about uh, 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 speaking of something which is created. We are rather speaking about a mode of correspondence between the uncreated and the created and that which is created by the nature of the case is not suitable to the job. And because, logically speaking, a value is either X or not X, I'm saying, it's either true or false, it's either created or uncreated, there are only two possible categories, just given what it means for a thing to be a category, given what it means for a thing to be possible, because this is all the case, it's not true that simply by some contingent factor, we can't give a direct articulation of the mode of correspondence between archetype and type, between uncreated logos and created imprint, symbol. It is rather that in principle, what it means for a thing to exist symbolically, what it means for God to be uncreated, what it means for us to articulate anything at all, all of these things in relation to each other entail that we cannot in principle give a rational articulation of the mode of correspondence. But this is not a flaw. This is simply a statement of reality. It is only a flaw if we have the idea in our mind that it ought to be some other way. And if we have that idea, fine, but first you better give it an a coherent articulation, which I do not believe you can do. And second, having articulated exactly what you mean, you have to actually give justification for it. And I don't think you can give justification for it. This is like saying that you are a bad artist because you find yourself incapable of drawing a square circle. It doesn't mean anything. It couldn't mean anything. No artist could make a square circle because there's no such thing as a square circle. There's a thing as a square circle, not contingently, but necessarily, because all you're doing is you're throwing syllables together in a way that produces nothing at all. By the same token, in a much more complicated way, and this is unfolded and unveiled in a much more complicated way than squareness and circleness, which is why, in fact, we use the latter as the example of the former, in a much more complicated way, there is no possible set of circumstances in which you could give an articulation of the mode of correspondence between the uncreated archetype and the created type. So language is intrinsically an imprint.
because language is created and all creatures exist as imprints. Language is intrinsically an imprint such that it is a self-contradiction, a square circle, I've given the example here, to articulate in language that which is the source and archetype of that imprint. So language, according to its being language, is an imprint. And what we're talking about in this context, what we are being asked to articulate is the nature of imprinting. So you can't give a meaningful answer to the nature of imprinting itself if all you can do is point back to the imprint. And that's why we cannot give a linguistic articulation and definition of the mode in which the creaturely symbol corresponds to the uncreated logos. The correspondent is real. It is genuine. It is a genuine symbol. Moreover, that mode of symbolism can be known. I want to emphasize this. We can know it. We simply cannot put it into linguistic form. How can we know it? Because we can know the uncreated archetype. So we can know the creature. We can also know the uncreated. What we can't do is give a linguistic explanation, which is somehow in between these two categories. We can know both of them, but their being known does not produce a viable articulate exegesis of the mode of correspondence. So God is known in deification because deification, theosis, divinization, what that means is union between God and his creation. And knowledge, well, that is an intellective union. Then I shall know fully, the apostle says, even as I have been fully known. You can see many places in the New Testament the way that knowledge pertains to theosis. 2 Corinthians 3, remember what I've said. Sensory apprehension is a form of mutual interiority. It's a form of union. It's a form of knowledge. Paul says, beholding the face of the Lord, beholding the face of the Lord, we are glorified. We are taken from glory to glory because we behold glory. Well, if we behold the uncreated as uncreated, that means the uncreated is in us because that which is manifest as light is, according to a different feature of its existence, the power by which light is known. In thy light shall we see light, the psalmist says. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if my words abide in you, you can understand what he's saying. We know the word when the word is in us and we are in the word. We know the spirit when the spirit is in us and we are in the spirit. There's a mutual interiority, which is an aspect of all uh, union and thus an aspect of all knowledge because knowledge is a kind of union. So this is the basis for theology. Theology is a rational enterprise in the sense in which we typically use it. At the beginning of this series, I criticized the use to which the quotation, the one who praises a true theologian, is often used. Now, I prefer Maximus's quotation, theology without prayer is the theology of demons, because this original quotation was uttered by a person who was of great personal sanctity, but who had a profoundly flawed theological system. And so, in a way, the source of the quotation indicates the flaw in its, uh, in its content. Uh, St. Sophroni Sakharov, as, uh, uh, as I believe in his discussion of St. Siloan, maybe in another case, maybe in his letters with Florovsky, um, but uh, St. Sophroni Sakharov, who was himself a dogmatic theologian and interpreted the witness of St. Siloan for dogmatic theology. Um, he speaks of the intersection 
of sanctity and academic brilliance in producing this unique constellation of qualities which produces a church father in the sense of the fifth council. So we speak of the desert fathers, the ascetic fathers, um, but we cannot reduce dogmatic theology to pietism. We cannot simply say that academic theology is a bunch of kind of whittling away boring time. No, academic theology is a real and significant pursuit for the church. The fathers of the church consistently identify it as such an important pursuit, and it cannot be reduced to knowing that which is uncreated, because our mission is not merely to know that which is uncreated as if we were just passive recipients. I mean, God, if he had wished to, could have freely created a world where there were a collection, or even one, disembodied minds who behold the face of God. But he created a world which is complex, which is interconnected in a complex way, which grows, and which grows through the cooperative effort of spirit-energized humanity. So man structures and shapes the creation by the power he receives in the Son, by the Spirit, in what we call deification. And that is part of the human calling. And so the act of symbolizing that which we have known in theosis, the act of symbolizing, utilizing our intellective powers, symbolizing God in theology, that is a worthy act that cannot be reduced to other aspects of our glorification in Christ. It is a distinct calling for the church. Father Demetrius Tanaloi, in his uh, chapter in his dogmatic theology, theology as ecclesial service has some very useful words to say on this on this point on the significance of theology for the church Catholic. I think he also gives a very uh, um, useful approach to the idea of doctrinal development. Doctrinal development, properly understood in its licit sense, is about those kinds of development where uh, a later quote-unquote stage of development is latent in earlier stages, that it's, it's genuinely implicit. But it has to be genuinely implicit. You can't just say that and think your work is done. There are claims to development which are not, in fact, implicit, because a very important principle is one does not affirm implicitly what one is contradicting explicitly. You can't have something implicit in the opposite explicit statement. That starts to get onto another topic. But Florovsky calls dogmas logical icons. In other words, they guide us to Christ. Remember what I said that the power of uncreated knowing, which is the only power by which we can know God, it is not according to a created capacity that we know God. We know God according to his communication of uncreated capacities to us. As St. Seraphim Sarov says to Nicholas Matolivov, I think is how you pronounce his name, he says, you would not be able to see me in the Holy Spirit unless you yourself were in the Holy Spirit. But the foundation upon which this uncreated power rests is its correspondent created power. So you can think about using an electrical plug, plugging it into the wall. Well, how is it that the current is carried from the electrical system more broadly to your computer? Well, it is through the interconnection of the plug with the uh, plug in the wall. We can actually see the correspondence between the power of knowing and, not, and knowing in the very way that we talk about plug. When I say plug, it actually could refer to either the receptive plug or the plug which you insert. I just realized this now. It's just interesting the way that these kind of relationships which show up all over the place appear in our most mundane uh, 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 words and definitions and concepts. Um, so 
that which bears us up to appropriate as truly an aspect of our own life, that life which is uncreated, we are born up in order to embrace that uncreated life by the correspondent pattern of created life. And this is what the proclamation of the gospel is all about. We proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and risen in whose face we behold that which never began to exist. But the only way in which one can know Christ is not to be given the knowledge of Christ or given theology. One must come and see, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John. And in the vision of Christ, there is all happiness and the fulfillment of everything else that one could desire to be fulfilled. So this very technical, some might call it, aspect of our theology in the end has a deeply practical implication. There is always more of God to be known. We've come to see that the statement of God's transcending our categories of knowledge in his essence it's not about a denial that God can be known. It is rather a statement that God being infinite, infinite, we can see the negation that is so typical of apophatic theology in the word infinite, infinite, incorporeal. The infinite character of God means there's always more to be known. He is manifesting himself in a way where no matter how deep you go, there is an infinite depth that still remains to be traversed. But his life is patterned in such a way that the whole, which remember, has no limit. It's infinite. The whole is in every aspect of it. So just as in any integer, I know we've used this analogy before, but it's incredibly useful, so I'm not going to stop using it. Every integer is present implicitly in every other integer. We know that our knowledge of God is representative of the real character of God because the real character of God is intertwined maximally, infinitely. Every thread in God's divine life is tied together with every other thread in God's divine life in an infinite number of ways. So to move along one thread is to move along all threads. And yet to move along all threads is still just to begin to penetrate into the depths of who God is. And thus become everything that you were actually meant to be and more yourself than you ever believed that you could be, soul and body alike. Thank you all for listening to this series. I hope you found it useful. I've definitely enjoyed making it and engaging with you guys about it. I ask, as always, for you to pray for me, to please, if you are Orthodox, include me in the weekly liturgical commemorations before the Holy Eucharist. That is, write my name in the diptychs. There should be those lists of names in the back of the church. You should be able to write it. Write my name in there with a pen. Write your name and names of your family. Um, your Orthodox family in there as well. Uh, this really has an effect and I would so much appreciate it if you would include me in your prayers, both private and liturgical. Thank you very much and I will see you again soon.